0: Comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter two, verses one to eleven, which can be found on uh, page four seventy-two of some of your pew Bibles. Um, if you don't have a pew Bible, it's right in the middle of uh, uh, many Bibles. Um, so, Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses one to eleven. I said to myself, "Come now, I will test you with pleasure and find out what is good." But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and the harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This is God's word.
1: Well, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. I'd like to thank Lizzie and Joy for sharing this morning. It was encouraging to hear the testimony. They're in uh, the baptism class currently, and I enjoy having them in there. Uh, also, one uh, wanted to uh, especially thank Stan and the worship team for Um, leading worship this morning. Just um, being here this morning, I kind of felt like we just sang through the whole sermon. (laughs) So I I don't really have to preach, but I don't want you guys to feel shortchanged. But uh, that was just great. It was just the whole message is what we're going to be talking about uh, today. Um, So we are in the second uh, week of our series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And, you know, this book causes us to have much introspection on why we do the things that we do. You know, the leading question in the opening verse is that it asks, what does a person gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? For many of our families, the majority of you parents both work, my family included, and we spend our weekends driving our kids from one activity to the next, why? So that we can have enough money to be able to live in a nice home and have enough money to allow our kids to participate in all these extracurricular activities in addition to hopefully saving enough money for college and retirement when that comes? Is that the gain the author speaks of? For those of you who are single or young married and working, you know, you work hard to save. Why do you do that? So that you could be in the position that me and the other families are in? Those of you who are in college or deciding majors or life after undergrad. You know, what is the gain you hope to accomplish? And I know you, a lot of you high schoolers, my daughters included, is stressing out about colleges and college apps. Why? You know, so you can get into a good college that will hopefully provide you a financially stable job. But to what, but to what end? You know, what's the point of doing what we're doing? Is the author writes, and Solomon. What does a person gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Why do we do the things that we do? It's like that story. I think some of you heard of um, the Wall Street executive who traveled to a Mexican fishing village and spoke with one of the fishermen there. Um, as I said, I think some of you heard this story before. But it's, there's this invest, American investment banker who was uh, traveling to Mexico and was at the pier of this small coastal Mexican fishing village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked. Inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna. And the American peered over and looked into the boat and saw the fish and complimented the Mexican fisherman and the quality of his fish. And he asked how long it took him to catch these fish. And the Mexican replied, only a little while. And the American asked him, why don't you stay longer and catch more fish? And the Mexican said, well, He had enough to support his family's needs. And then the American asked him, well, what do you do the rest of the day? And the fisherman said, well, I sleep late. I, um, fish a little. I play with my children. I take a siesta with my wife in the afternoon, stroll into the village each evening where we, uh, you know, drink wine and and we chat amongst friends. I have a full and busy life, he said. And the American scoffed, you know, I have a heart, I have an MBA from Harvard and I can help you. You should spend more time fishing and with the proceeds, buy a bigger boat. And with the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats and eventually you'd have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you would sell directly to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You would control the product, processing and distribution. You'd need to leave leave the small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City and eventually you'd wind up in LA And then New York, where you will run your expanding empire. And the Mexican fisherman asked, well, how long will this take? And the American thinks about it. He's like, well, maybe 15 to 20 years. But what then? asked the Mexican. The American laughed and said, well, this is the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO in your company and you would sell stock to the public and become very rich. You would make millions of dollars. Mexican fisherman is like, millions? Then what? The Americans said, well, then you would retire, move to a small coastal fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take siestas with your wife, and go to the village in the evening and chat with your friends. I mean, is this really the end goal? As Pastor Tim preached in the first message, the author of Ecclesiastes would declare, this is meaningless. As verse 2 of chapter 1 reads, everything is meaningless. I got a uh, chuckle a couple of weeks ago when, after Pastor Tim uh, preached this message, Mark went out to the ultimate field, and I don't know if some of you saw it, he posted this. Oh, this thing's not working. Uh, can you change two slides, Kyle? There you go. If you can't read it, it's, it's an empty field, and if, if you can't read the caption, it says, even being on time is meaningless. Understandably, we work or hope to work or to obtain a good job in order to provide ourselves. I mean, yes, we need to pay rent or mortgage, we need to buy groceries, we have to pay utilities, and we have to save for when we are no longer able to work. But what if finances were no longer an issue? What if you had so much money that you didn't need to worry about having resources for the rest of your life, and you could live however you please? I don't, I don't think any of you buy lottery tickets, which is a good thing. But when the jackpot gets high, and you hear all these news stories about, oh, Mega Millions or Powerball reached $500 million this week, or $600 the last, you know, biggest one was 700, I think it was over $700 million. Don't you, at least for a bit, stop and think what you would do if you had all that money? You wouldn't have to work if you didn't want to. You could pay off all your student loans, pay off your home, could do whatever you wanted. You may never be in that position. But King Solomon in the Bible was. And we don't have to wonder what it would be like to live a life of unlimited wealth because Solomon did it for us. And this is what he describes in chapter 2. Back in Old Testament times, if there was a report on the richest men in the world, King Solomon would have been at the top of the list, as we heard in our scripture reading, in the first part of verse 8, King Solomon says, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. For our family um, devotions, we actually are currently going through the book of First Kings. And the nice part of going through First Kings as we're studying Ecclesiastes here on Sundays is it gives us more insight into Solomon's life, which we'll see throughout this message. Much of his wealth came from gift, gifts and taxes uh, and, and just plunder from battle. If you want, you could flip all over to 1 Kings 10, and you can read in 1 Kings 10, verse 23. It says, King Solomon was greater in riches than all the other kings of the earth. Earlier in that chapter, if you turn to 1 Kings chapter 10, you can look at verses 14 to 15, and it states that the weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. 666 talents a year, they may mean nothing to you, but if you... Have turned the first kings and you can probably see that there's a footnote in your Bible saying that 666 talents is equivalent to about 25 tons. 25 tons of gold each year. And if you do the math, with the price of gold hovering around $1,300 an ounce, that would be worth over $1 billion a year. And once again, this passage states that this did not include revenues from other territories. And to give you an example of this, early in this chapter, the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon. And it says in verse 10 of 1 Kings 10, she brought Solomon 120 talents of gold along with spices and precious stones. So this gold alone, this 120 talents, would have added another $180 million to his account. So it's easy to see that Solomon was a very, very wealthy man. And so with all this, these resources, Solomon decided to conduct an experiment. Let's see if this works now. Talking to the next slide, please. He decided to conduct an experiment. In verse 1, it reads, I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Verse 10 even elaborates a little more. I denied myself nothing. I refused my heart no pleasure. I planned to live a life of ultimate hedonism. The band U2 wrote a song many years back for the late country singer Johnny Cash titled The Wanderer. I don't know if any of you have heard of it before. But in it is the verse, which sounds very similar to what Solomon did. The verse is, Verse goes like this. I went out there in search of experience, to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. For Solomon, it's a little different, because understand, he didn't go so far as to cross into forbidden territory. For he states a couple of times in our passage that throughout this experience, his wisdom stayed with him. But I would say he probably lived right to the edge of these borders. At the end of verse 1, he gives us the TLDR summary of the experiments, of the experiments, sorry, saying that everything was meaningless. But the passage describes more in details of all he did. And we're going to look at this. There's an old phrase uh, that used to go, wine, woman, and song. In fact, a very old English cu- couplet read, Who loves not woman, wine, and song remains a fool his whole life long. And this pretty much categorizes all that Solomon did. Well, I would add one more character uh, category, and that would be habitation. He dabbled in wine, woman, song, and his habitation. Verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. Once again, Solomon wasn't drinking wine to get into a drunken stupor. He was drinking to enjoy the finer things in life. He enjoyed fine wine and gastronomy. This was not a person going to Costco or Trader Joe's to buy the $4 bottle of Chardonnay. He was more like the one who had a sommelier, you know, recommending the choices, choices, bottles of wine. As for his meals, because again, you can turn back to 1 Kings. And in chapter 4, verse 22, you'll find this. It says in 1 Kings 4.22, Solomon's daily provisions were 30 cores, which was about five and a half tons, of the finest flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. I mean, this, of course, was not only for Solomon, it was for his whole palace, But still, this was his daily provision. All these animals, all this fine grain. Regarding his habitation, he continues in verses 4 to 6. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all these kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Notice the word for his home, his, you know, his abode, is plural. He doesn't say, I built a home or a house. He said, I had houses built. And if he were alive today, this would have been the person who had you know, the beach house in Hawaii, the ski lodge in Aspen, the penthouse in Manhattan. As for his primary residence, 1 Kings 7 tells us that it took 13 years to construct his palace whereas it only took seven years to construct the temple of the Lord. And this is not to imply totally that his palace was much grander than the temple, for there were some distinctives about about the temple that set it apart. But it still took almost twice as long to build his palace as it did the temple. And we we don't have time to go into it, but you can look at it and and read about it in 1 Kings 7. I mean, it was... Quite grand with with all these rooms, and and I think it was about three levels. And as we see in Ecclesiastes, it's not just the buildings, but it's also the landscaping. He describes these lush gardens and parks and reservoirs. I recognize these weren't, you know, public works projects. This was for Solomon's pleasure. Anytime he wanted to, he could just, you know, stroll in his garden, walk along the lake. Grab, you know, fruit from his fruit trees. Solomon got bored. It says later on, he was able to hire his own entertainment. Verse eight tells us that he acquired male and fem- female singers to entertain him, and I assume that this would also imply that any other type of performers he wanted to have could have hired them too. One of the concerns people have about being in such a big residence is the cleaning part. But Solomon didn't have to care about that. Earlier in verse 7, it says he bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in his house. I mean, he didn't have to worry about sweeping floors or tending to his garden. He just hired other people to do it. And when Solomon wanted to be fulfilled in another way, it says at the end of verse 8 that he attained a harem. The First King once again gives us specific details into the number of women Solomon had. In First Kings eleven, verse three, it says this Solomon had seven hundred wives of royal birth and three hundred concubines. He had a thousand women. He could have had a different partner each night for almost three years. And I just, when I read this, actually I just wanted to change it for a moment because I don't want to spend too much time on this because um, you know, this is not the point of the text. But, but I do want to say something about this in light of all the, you know, the recent news going on these past couple of weeks with Harvey Weinstein and, and the, you know, hashtag MeToo campaign that hundreds of thousands of women are responding to around the world. Yes, you know, if you look at King Solomon's life and, and he had these women at his disposal. And yes, this is in the Bible, but when you read the entirety of Scripture, you know, understand this does not represent a biblical view of women. God did not condone what Solomon was doing. And also, we read in First Timothy. In First Timothy, Paul's writing to his protege, this younger pastor, and he instructs Timothy in chapter five, verse two. He says treat older women as you would your mother and younger women as sisters. And then he adds this, with absolute purity. With absolute purity. And I'm sure many of you know, there's all these other verses about husbands and wives and how husbands are supposed to love and care for their wives and love them as Christ loved the church. You know, when I, when I read this, I just had to take a step back with all the news going on about this because I know for us men, this is such, you know, an area of temptation for us. You know, maybe more so in our thoughts than in our actions. But, you know, let's covenant together to not view women in this way. To not view them as objects for our personal gain. But to care for them in purity, seeking to encourage them and build them up in Christ. You know, following Jesus' example, anytime we see Jesus interacting with women, He never crossed any lines. You know, He treated them with respect. He uplifted them. He gave them grace. You know, men, let's, let's covenant together to treat our women like that. Older women, as we were our mothers. Younger women, as our sisters, with absolute purity. Getting back to the main point of the text. You know, we read all this. Solomon lived a life of hedonism. You know, as he said in verse 10, he truly did not deny himself anything his eyes desired. Maybe some of us read this and like, yeah, that sounds cool. You know, maybe we'd like to be in his place and experience all that he did. But what is the result? What was the end result of his experiment? And to truly understand this point, we have to understand the meaning of this word, Hebel. So this word Hebel is the word that's translated meaningless throughout Ecclesiastes 2. Anytime you find the word meaningless, you know, meaningless, it's this word Hebel. And that's how it's translated in the NIV. Maybe you have other versions. And in the ESV, I know many of you use, it's translated as vanity. Other word, other versions of the Bible use the word feudal or futility, but uh, hebel literally means breath or breathe or breeze. The breeze. Uh, yeah. Can we turn to the next slide, yeah. next point. Yeah. And other examples of this word are found in passages like Psalm 144, verse 4, which says, "Man is like a breath. This is the word hebel. His days are like a fleeting shadow." And also Proverbs 31.30, where it says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. Again, that's this word, Hevel. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So with that understanding, the point I want to make is that when the NIV translates Hevel is, this word Hevel as meaningless throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a little bit misleading. Because the author of Ecclesiastes does not see everything as meaningless. In our passage, at the end of the experiment, it says it in verse 10, my heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. So obviously he found a bit of satisfaction in it. He took delight in his labor. He found it, to some extent, his reward. But then, in verse 11, he says, when I surveyed what my hands had done, and so, you know, and, and he goes on, at the end he says, everything was meaningless. Everything was heaven. But once again, it wasn't that he saw this as meaningless, since he took some delight in it, since he found some satisfaction in it. I think in verse 11, what he's saying is that he realizes that though this experiment may have provided some pleasure for him, it was all fleeting. It was just a breeze that just comes and goes which is why he has, it was like a chasing after the wind. You know, he said, I lived a life that people could only dream of living. But I tell you, this did not satisfy me. This may have provided some temporal satisfaction, but it doesn't last. And he would warn us, if this is what you are living for, you will find the same result. As one rabbi stated, it does not satisfy that unnameable hunger in the soul. You know, for us, we do things for enjoyment. You know, we play sports, we go out and eat, we get together with friends. And we do them not because we think we're meaningless. They provide a certain amount of satisfaction and pleasure. But once again, Solomon will warn us, if this is what you're living for, it will fade away. And you will be left with nothing. So the question is, where does one find lasting pleasure? And the specific text doesn't tell us. But fortunately, we have the whole of Scripture to call upon. The psalmist in Psalm 16, verse 11, writes about God, and he pens this, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures in your right hand. And in John 10.10, Jesus says about himself, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So, last thing, pleasure is not found in what the world strives after, but it comes in pursuing God and finding that He is the source of our satisfaction and pleasure. It comes when we live our lives for Him and seek to carry out our role in fulfilling His mission to bring about reconciliation and restoration to this broken world. Now, some people look at these verses and think this refers you know, to the afterlife. We kind of pay our dues on earth, you know, kind of you know, working hard, working diligently, struggling, suffering, in order that we can experience pleasure when we get to heaven. <clears throat> but this is not totally true. Because in the parable of the rich young ruler in Mark 10, After the rich young ruler walks away because he couldn't give up his possessions, Jesus turns to the disciples who have left everything to follow Jesus, and he tells them this, beginning in verse 29. You can read the passage behind me. Truly I tell you, no one who has left homes or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. The key phrase, in this present age, Jesus promises to be a hundred times more than anything you could give up if we would give up our attachment to these things. Jesus promises to be a hundred times more love and comfort And satisfaction than any other thing we would seek to find these characteristics in. But the question is, you know, what if we're not experiencing God in that way? You know, we call ourselves Christians, we're followers of Jesus Christ, but maybe we don't see God as all that satisfying. You know, maybe really we really struggle to see Him in that way. If that's the case, I would propose that maybe we aren't experiencing Him as much as we should because we aren't pursuing Him as much as we should. You know, during Crossbridge Retreat, Dr. Fisenmeier, you know, he was a great speaker, and actually, if you don't know, I don't think they're up yet, but we're going to have his messages online on our website pretty soon. But during the Crossbridge Retreat, Dr. Fisenmeier shared that. A quote from C.S. Lewis, that very familiar quote about, you know, how we are too busy spending time happily making mud pies in the slum when God offers us a holiday at sea. And he also shared with us that, you know, without even knowing us, he could easily see what's important to us by looking at our checkbooks and our calendars. And I would add one more thing to that list not just our checkbooks and calendars, but what we post on social media. I think people could look at our posting and they would make conclusions that we pursue good food, travel, friendships, time with family. And once again, none of these things are bad. They do provide a sense of pleasure and satisfaction. But are we spending so much Investing in the temporary, which is happily making mud pies, at the neglect of finding out that which is truly satisfying, that which is truly lasting. I see we eagerly invest our time trying out new restaurants, you know, seeing the latest movies, going on trips, spending time with friends, which once again, nothing wrong. But do we equally invest in developing a relationship with God? Spending time with Him? in his word and prayer, to get to know him better, to find him to be this all-satisfying God that he is? Do we seek to live out the missional purpose for which he has called us to, and we find pleasure in that? I think it would be wise to make an assessment of how we're doing in that area if we aren't experiencing God in that way. This summer my family and I uh, had the chance to join Millie's sister's family on a trip to Florida. Uh, You know, we went to a couple of theme parks and had a good time there. It was just nice to see. I had never been to some of them before. But while I was there, I kept thinking about, you know, previous summers when uh, we had an opportunity to participate in some overseas mission work. And even though the conditions in Florida were much more nicer and comfortable than how things were overseas. When I was overseas, the last time I could barely breathe multiple times because of the air there. Um, But, you know, investing in the students that we work with, having opportunities to try to plant seeds, to share the gospel with them, that gave me more joy than being at the, you know, quote-unquote happiest place on earth. So what are you pursuing How are you investing your life? Solomon would tell us in Ecclesiastes, don't settle for temporary pleasures, but pursue lasting joy, which is only found in Jesus. That Jesus would be all these things to us as we pursue him and quit spending our time pursuing things that will just only are only like a breath and will be fleeting. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the wisdom of Solomon. The scripture tells us he was truly the wisest man on earth. And just for the, the wisdom that is imparted to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Father, you know, maybe secretly uh, we would envy the opportunities that Solomon had that we could only dream of experiencing things that he was able to experience but Lord let us heed his warning that even though these things may sound attractive to us they're but a breath that just disappears and has no lasting value and Lord may we pursue hard after You and find You to be the thing that we would long for because You give us lasting joy and satisfaction. I proudly these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you, Pastor.